Specialty Story Session Number 110. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week where I get to have an amazing conversation with a physician about his or her specialty. And this week is no exception. I get to talk to Dr. Shannon Tapia, a new local to me here in the Colorado area. She is a geriatrician and someone who is now going to be doing house calls, which is awesome. We talk all about why she chose geriatrics, what she likes about it, what she doesn't like about it. And I had a great conversation with her because she was hilarious and very forthcoming with a lot of her struggles and issues with the medical system. So hopefully you will get a lot out of this conversation. I started the conversation with Dr. Tapia about why she chose geriatrics. So my father's actually a geriatrician. Um, and so that was my first exposure to medicine. And obviously that was, you know, me growing up was medicine was even di- far more different back then. But that was um, sort of what I saw medicine as. And I got to sort of, he would take me to, you know, every year, take your daughter to work day. And mm. I I ended up having relationships with some of his patients. Like I'd read to his, you know, a blind patient of his that lived in assisted living and then a nursing home. And so it was one of those things where uh, I really have always preferred the cognitive aspects of medicine. I mean, I, I can do procedures. I did family medicine. It was very procedure heavy, but I just never really got super stoked about it unless it was like abscess bursting. That's just satisfying <laughs> for everybody, right? I mean, like- So you're a doctor, doctor Pimple Popper fan. Yeah, I mean, like it's so <laughs> gross, but so satisfying. Uh, but that's like the only- That and earwax removal are like the only things I get really stoked about procedurally, which- pretty much means you should, I should not be a surgeon. Right. So, um, yeah, so I realized that, so being exposed to it early on and then also realizing as I went into medicine and medical school, how truly, um, challenging cognitively geriatrics is, I was drawn to it essentially. Yeah. What is it about the the cognitive load of being a geriatrician that you think you enjoy? Uh, so it's kind of, I kind of compare it to being like the Sherlock Holmes of doctors because, you know, our patient population, not only do they have like huge genetic variability if they live long enough, they also have a lifetime of their choices that you throw into the mix of trying to figure out what is going on with them. And they don't present, uh, a lot of their symptoms don't present like your typical textbook uh, and frequently they have cognitive issues themselves, like early dementia or even advanced dementia. So they can't actually just come in and say, this is what hurts, or this is how I feel. You really have to have a huge differential. You have to get a collaborative history from their family. You have to really know the environment. And I, I find that very stimulating and challenging and super satisfying when you do figure out what's going on, which like say half the time it's med side effects from the specialist throwing a med at them that they should have never been on. But still, I find it really satisfying. And then sometimes, you know, you you realize like there's not an answer, but 
working with the patient and their families about given the fact that we don't really know exactly, or even if we have an idea, you know, it it really covers all aspects of medicine. You have to be able to say, okay, we think this could be happening, but the risks of the lab diagnostics in your given state of health might not even be worth it because even if we Hmm. figured out exactly what it is, we might not have any good treatments for you. So it's just constantly thinking essentially and having to navigate that with your patients and really their families because half the time my patients don't really, <laughs> a lot of them have dementia. So yeah. How, how is that different? So somebody listening to this, who's interested in maybe primary care and internal medicine or family medicine is thinking, well, besides the cognitive aspects, right? How is that different than any other type of patient? Um, like a younger, you, uh, younger, non, non-elderly patient. So you mean the cognitive aspects on my side or? or yeah. So you, you talked about the cognitive aspects of, of yeah. your patients and, and having to do kind of a collaborative history and all that stuff. Um, but as far as the diagnosing and the, the Sherlock Holmes type of thing, right? If, uh, if a 30-year-old patient comes in with a, an interesting diagnosis and, and presentation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I see what you're saying. So, yeah, if a 30 pa- 30-year-old patient comes in and to be honest, you know, the majority of 30 you know, 30 to 50 year olds, there are always rare diagnoses, uh, but most of them present pretty similar to what they should be presenting as. And they can also tell you their own history, you know, so they come in and they, you ask them appropriate questions and you can get an accurate history for the most part. I'm excluding um, people who are actively psychotic from this discussion because those you can't get an accurate history on. But so it's, it's different in that sense because So what they tell you, but also what they, even if they are cognitively intact for a geriatric patient, you know, what they say, you kind of have to expand your differential because like I said, a lot of things present differently in the elderly population. You know, they have dampened immune systems. They don't mount a fever. They don't necessarily, they have neuropathy. They don't feel pain in the same way. So Physiology, yeah, the physiology is different. The physiology is a lot different. And so you constantly have to kind of be thinking almost about like everything and narrowing it down, which is, I find enjoyable. I wish I got paid more for that, but I find it enjoyable. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Too bad you can't, you can't uh, bill based on your differential. That would be much better. Uh, uh, Or even how much time I spent with them, you know? Oh, well, (laughs) it is what it is. But yeah, so it's, it's just, um, Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, until you've really like spent a lot of time with geriatric patients, it's hard to truly describe the extent of how different it is, but you're just dealing with a whole lot of different factors um, when you're trying to approach a problem and then a lot more limitations on what, you know, what the achievable goals are. Mm -hmm. So being able to reconcile those and have a outcome that is realistic, but people can be comfortable with is a, a good challenge that I like. What kind of traits do you think lead to someone being a good geriatrician? Um, I think a healthy sense of humor, <laughs> um, for sure. Uh, definitely um, patience, not being afraid to kind of, you know, get into the thick of things, you know, because like I do house calls, like I, you never know what you're going to walk into half the time. Um, not being, uh, you know, not taking yourself too seriously, because if you do, you're going to end up probably missing what the patient really needs or their family really needs. Um, being empathic and being comfortable with mortality. Um, if you 
are, if you are not someone who can like stop doing things to people, you should not be a geriatrician. That makes sense. Hmm. You know, um, because there's a, there's a mentality in medicine, especially, you know, surgical fields, which makes sense. But like you come to me with a problem, I'm going to (laughs) intervene, whether it be a procedure or give you a medicine and we're going to fix it. And as patients get older, you know, the only truth is we all die. (laughs) If you go to like a geriatrics conference, the the thing that every, every time someone leads with this joke is some variation of like, uh, geriatrics being like life is a sexually transmitted terminal condition with a hundred percent mortality, you know, (laughs) like, and we all think that's hilarious, but you know, it's true. And so you, there comes a point where there's always more we could do, but you have to be able to step back and say, wait a minute, what would the quality of life and prognosis for this person be, even if I do it? Like, what will that not only look like immediately after, even if they recover, but in two years down the road? And is that something they would have ever wanted? Yeah. You know? And so you just have to be far more big picture approach and not just like focusing on the immediate problem at hand, if that makes sense. No, makes complete sense. Yeah. And it's it's always one of those kind of ethical moral dilemmas with, um, with especially new bright eyed pre-med students and med students yeah. with, yeah. with, Oh, my job as a doctor is to save patients and this whole physician assisted suicide and withholding treatment or withholding a diagnosis from a patient. Oh, that's terrible. And, um, yeah. there's, yeah, it's, there's, it's there's hard of, until you're in the mix. Yeah. And there's a lot of, um, propaganda around the issues, you know, yeah. and extremes, but really you just have to take it one patient and they're, goals and preferences at a time yeah. because, because I mean, if, if I had my way, I would, I have very strong opinions and when my advanced directive comes out, it'll be like, no, really, if I'm 80 and I have a heart attack, just let me die. But that's me, you know, yep. so you have to be able to, um, have your opinions, but separate yourself from that. And that's the other problem too, is, you know, there's a lot of misinformation, even for geriatric patients and their families about what is achievable in medicine. So you have to really get to know not only the patient, but their families and, um, and sort of be honest with them about what you think, whatever intervention they're considering, whether it's even a diagnostic one or, a a curative or treatment one, um, most of them aren't curative at a certain point, but you know, if it's a treatment situation, you have to be able to like take their goals and try to translate what the realistic prognosis would be for them, considering what, you know, their wishes are. And that's not easy always because there's a lot of misinformation about what the medical community can achieve at a certain point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What is kind of the bread and butter day of a, a geriatrician look like? So it's really variable, to be honest, because it, you know, geriatrics is a field that's, um, it's struggling (laughs) because for reasons that I'm sure most people can appreciate who are in medical school, you know, it is fully Medicare or Medicare Advantage plans, but it's a cognitive field. Like, it's not like I have a procedure that I always do that I can rack up reimbursement for. And so, um, it's struggling because if you're in private practice, it's really hard to pay off your student loans and do it well because there's a lot of push to do either high volume or which if you're doing geriatrics and seeing patients every 10 minutes, you're probably doing a crappy job of geriatric medicine for sure. But so 
it's a challenging thing. And I think most there, there are very few private practice geriatricians anymore. Um, just because it's, it's tough and the pressures in the private practice world are hard. And then there's only a few really great academic institutions that have great geriatric support programs. And so, uh, the typical day would be very different from an academician. And I was faculty at tech, like it's, it's very different depending on which realm you practice in. Chances are, if you're in academic geriatrics, you're going to do a mixture of hopefully they have a geriatric consult service um, at the hospital you're affiliated with. So you'll be on service a little bit. You'll have heavy clinic and then lots of didactics. But it's been pr- typically pretty hard for academic institutions to do like long-term care providing because that's a whole different set of private regulations that tends to be challenging in the academic setting. If you're a private practice geriatrician, which is technically what I am now, your day is pretty variable depending on if you're clinic-based or if you're going out to either, whether it be facilities or house-based care. So I am actually in transition. So I don't start my job for a few months, but when I do, it'll look like um, hopefully the practice will be in one ge- geographic area. So I'm not driving, you know, from like downtown Denver to Boulder to see a house call, mm-hmm. you know, that won't happen because they know that's not efficient, but I will probably, the goal will be to see about 10 patients a day, but they'll probably mix them up so that, you know, four will be in one assisted living facility, four might be in another assisted living facility. So it's not like I'm going to that many houses and then two independent homes within that ge- geographic region. And I just go, go from patient to patient. And then if whatever I can't document in the visit, I take home with me and, <laughs> and document, Yeah, you know? So. The bane of every physician's existence, documentation. The bane, you know, it's funny. Cause I mean, I believe like my frustration, especially being a geriatrician, you know, it's, you can't get away or it's bad for your patients if you don't write something more than just the click boxes, because yep. a lot of times there's more involved that needs to be put out there. So I do, I also do a little bit of expert witness and I've done chart reviews and I'm just like, there is so much chart vomit, like what yeah. we are required to put in the medical record. So much of it is just completely useless information. Yep. <laughs> so yeah. The bane of everybody's existence. So you mentioned something that probably piqued the interest of a lot of students. You mentioned yeah. house calls and going to people's houses. Now that yeah. that kind of brings up images of 1950s, like the the neighborhood doctor with his yeah. or her, typically his back in those days, uh, black doctor bag, yep. uh, going from from house to house to house. Talk about yeah. what that experience is like. It's cool. So before I moved to Denver, I actually did my own, um, actually direct primary care house calls. I essentially provided concierge level medicine for practically free. Um, that was not a good business model, but I loved (laughs) the medicine. Um, it it allowed the flexibility I needed because I was essentially a single mom without family, but here I have family support. Anyway, long story short is, so I started doing it. I was fortunate in my geriatric fellowship to get really good exposure to it. I had a very solid clinical geriatric fellowship. That's the other problem with geriatric fellowships is they're hugely variable. Some are more research focused, some are more clinical, you know, so there's a huge variety in what you get. I was very fortunate. Mine was only a year, but it was clinically focused on every level. Um, and so I had, had exposure to it in a in a good and bad way meaning it was good i realized i loved it and i saw how bad it could get what you could walk into and still knowing that chose to do it 
but part of why I really love doing it um, is because for the patient population that most geriatricians end up serving, you know, like it, it's not a number like 65, just because your Medicare age does not mean you need a geriatrician, right? Like it's really based on your physiology and the individual patients. I've seen 50 year olds that need a geriatrician because of their early onset dementia and everything they have going on. And I've seen 90 year olds who are like totally fine. And I'm like, nope, you don't need me, <laughs> you know, go to your family doc. So so there's a huge variety, but for the majority of the patients that really need geriatricians, um, going to their home is actually what's best for them and best for, for really figuring out what's going on with them. Because a lot of times they have, whether it be physical debility or even a mild cognitive debility, getting them to the doctor is a huge deal. They don't drive anymore or they can't drive anymore. They have family who work, so they really can't get out. And so it's actually what's best for them. And then it also gives me, as their physician, so much more information. And, and you build a relationship. It's a different level when they invite you into your home. You kind of become part of their family, really. Like, you really do. Uh, so uh, you have this much more intimate relationship with them, which I think is really key. Like, there's a lot more trust involved. Um, but also, you see a lot more. You know, you get a patient that comes to your office and you just sort of have to go on face with what they say. Yes, I'm taking my medicines. Yes, I'm eating, et cetera, et cetera. I walk into a home and I see how they do their medicines and I'm like, oh my gosh, no wonder your INR is off. Like you, you're like, you are so not remembering this and not able to manage it on your own. And that's the kind of thing that you get at such a unique perspective when you get to go to their home. Yeah. What do you think of the work-life balance for geriatricians is? You know, I think um, that it has the potential to have a very good work-life balance. It just depends on how much money you, you need for your life balance because, it again, it's a low reimbursement field. Yeah. And so if you are one of those people that wants to take extravagant vacations, eh, it's not for you. You know, you should probably go into anesthesiology or something <laughs> like that. But for me, as like a, a single mom, and actually not having to be tied to an office where I have to show up exactly at probably 7.45 to be ready for my eight o'clock patient. Mm -hmm. It's huge because, you know, when you're doing, whether you're doing house calls or you're going to like a nursing home or a long-term care facility, you know, there's a time frame that you, well, especially with house calls, there's a time frame that when you're like, Hey, we're going to be here around this time frame, But because you're coming to them, there's an expectation we can't account for traffic. We can't account for all of these things. So they know like you, you're not, you might not be there exactly at eight. Right. So there's a flexibility that, that, that comes with having children, but still being able to go out and do that kind of work. It's clinical work, but it's not like you have to be clocked in at a certain time. Yeah. So that's really awesome. The only challenge is, um, again, like the documentation requirements and those sorts of things put a lot of pressure on you. So you end up taking work home, you know, so that's not, and hopefully in time they will get more efficient or we'll find ways to work around that. But that's the only frustrating thing is it, it can provide a significant work-life balance on one hand, but you probably are going to be taking work home if you're a private practice geriatrician. Academ now, academia is a little different. You know. When you talk about it being a low reimbursement field, is that mostly due to Medicare itself or is that due to it just being a typical diagnostic type field with not a lot of procedures? 
Uh, it's well, it's because of Medicare. I mean, Medicare sets the fees even for private insurances. Yep. So the way it works is everything in medicine, you know, the whole ICD 10 code used to be ICD 9. It's essentially billing codes. It's all based on trying to figure out how much they're going to pay you, how many RVUs you got for a visit. Yep. And the way the system works out is time gets very few RVUs unless you do a ton of volume. And but procedures get you a ton. So just in, inherit that it's a high, highly um, cognitive and diagnostic. Yes, but it's not like I'm ordering tons of tests because usually those tests are bad for my patients. You know, yeah. I order blood work a lot. I order tests when necessary, but I'm not sending all my patients for like fancy workups. You know, so all of those things combined, it's it's a low reimbursement field unless you do high volume. And so people who do nursing home care sometimes do pretty well because they can do high volume because you can see a ton of people in one place. And nursing home is different than assisted living, even different than house calls. In nursing home care, um, the way they re it's reimbursed, the billing codes, it's not just face-to-face -face visit, it's floor time. It's kind of more like a hospital. Mm -hmm. So like you can bill for all the time you spent on that patient while you're on the floor. As long as you saw them, it doesn't have to be all face-to-face -face time. Whereas if you're in outpatient clinic or in a house call, your time is all face-to-face -face time with them. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. What's the training so, path look like to get to become a geriatrician? That's a good question. And one that um, I don't know if I would, I would probably have still become a geriatrician. I might've done it differently. So you can either do internal medicine or family practice to get to be a geriatrician. And I originally was going to do internal medicine. And then I had really great uh, mentors in family medicine and came to feel that, you know, geriatrics is really an outpatient field. You know, if your patients are in the hospital, that's not good. You know, the prognosis is dire. Yeah. So I wanted to go into a field that like emphasized outpatient. And I, I got the sense in medical school that family medicine did that. Um, so I just at like last minute decided to do family medicine instead. Um, so you can do either internal medicine or family medicine and that residency. And then it's either a one or two year fellowship after that. Um, but the problem is whatever one you choose, you have to take both boards for. So uh, I did family medicine and now I have to recertify. I have to take the family medicine board every 10 years and the geriatrics board and a ton of junk that the family <laughs> medicine makes me do that is largely focused on like peds and women's health, yeah. which I'm glad I like learned a lot about it and could deliver a baby on an airplane if necessary, but like, that's not what I do anymore. And so <laughs> I, 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 and I hadn't realized that like, even after I matched, it wasn't until my fellowship that my attending mentor was like, Oh no, you got to take both tests like every 10 years and do all of the things that aren't related. And I was like, what? Ugh. I had no idea. No one told me. Uh, yeah. So now these med students will know. <laughs> so <laughs> no. Choose wisely. Now they I mean, know. Yeah. You may end up loving both, but if you know you just want to do geriatrics, like you really know that, I'd probably say do internal medicine, you yeah. know. Good to know. Yeah. Once you are a geriatrician, are there further opportunities to further subspecialize? Not really, actually. Um, no. Um, maybe they will come out, you know, with more like geri psych, but most geri psych, if you're truly a geri psych, you have to have done a psychiatry, you mm -hmm. know, residency or... So, so not, not 
without doing like significantly more training than you would really want to do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. For the osteopathic physicians out there listening to this, my assumption is that there's not much negative bias towards DOs in the geriatrician world. Oh, absolutely not. And same with like family. I did family medicine. Yeah. Like we all, I actually, I'm like an MD and I prefer, I was like, oh, you're a DO. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to refer my patients to you because yep. you can do more than I can. <laughs> you know. So no, 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 there's not any negative bias whatsoever. I, there might, I mean, look, Harvard has a, a geriatrics fellowship. Yep. You try to go there. They're a little hoity toity. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe there's a bias, but overall geriatrics is like needed. They don't fill like they barely fill 50% of the fellowship spots for geriatrics every wow. year. So, and I, I, and unfortunately there are some people who do a fellowship just for filler, you know, because they can, when really they have no intention of really practicing geriatrics, which is, I'm still glad they're doing it, but just because someone's doing a geriatrics fellowship does not mean they're going to be a geriatrician, if that makes sense. And no, that makes no sense. I, I understand what you're saying, but yeah. like, let's make some less salary as a fellow than go work. Um, yeah, I know. Well, there are some places. Well, you know, like if you're with a, you're in a couple situation, and yeah. and you your your significant other has one more year, and you don't want to sign up for a job, and you guys are kind of already used to that. You know what I mean? Yep. Those those sorts of things happen pretty commonly, or at least they did it where where I've been. But yeah. For the future uh, internal medicine, family practice, uh, any other uh, future physicians out there who aren't geriatricians, what should they know about what you are doing or what geriatricians are doing day in and day out to help their patients potentially get to you sooner for better care? So, well, to the internal and family practice, I would say... Um, First thing I would say is geriatrics is a specialty. And that's been my biggest frustration with some family docs because I did family medicine. I understand, but there are some that think that geriatrics is not like, there are some that think that they've got it all. You know, they were trained in a way and they don't need that help because okay. it's kind of a weird specialty. You know what I mean? It's like a specialty, but it's not a specialty. Yeah. But uh, so I would say, it is, and we are trained to do a lot of the things and uh, give ourselves the time, whether we're given it or not. We take the time because that's what we are trained to do, to recognize a lot of things that can help your patients out. Like, you know, if they are having weird symptoms and are on a ton of different medicines, there's a really good chance we're going to be able to figure out what medicines are actually, you know, causing side effects, try to mitigate that prescribing cascade where, you know, they have a side effect from the med and rather than like taking away the med, another med is prescribed and then another for the symptoms of that. So we, and, and then we are, we are very good at recognizing and helping treat, um, even more. And I don't want to knock neurology, but I'd say dementia for the run of the mill dementias, like Alzheimer's and, um, most vascular dementias, like geriatricians almost, are better suited to treat it than um, neurology because we kind of are also generalists in the whole area. And so we're able to kind of take a more big pic picture approach, stay involved with the families, get them connected to the resources they need more than just like do a cognitive eval once a year and, touch, you know, give them medicine, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. So, um, I'd say really, if you have patients to people in internal medicine, family medicine, 
if you have people who are, uh, you know, of the geriatric population or have a geriatric syndrome, I don't want to say an age matters, but like Parkinson's disease, certain types of early onset dementia, those are considered geriatric syndromes. So even if you're like 55 and had them, you would, you would benefit probably from a geriatrician, lots of chronic illnesses, lots of meds, you know, uh, get a, get a geriatric consult involved. They won't take over, but they can really help. Um, uh, especially when you have a busy clinic, you know, Q 15 minute schedule and there's just no way you can address all of those issues. Yeah. So, yeah. What other specialties do you work the closest with? I would say a lot of cardiology, um, because, you know, so many, especially, I mean, I was just in Texas. So again, <laughs> it probably depends on where you are. Yeah. I, I think, of where I was in Texas, like at one point had the highest number of like fraudulent catheterizations oh. in the country. So I don't think that's, but also by the fact of modern cardiology is probably why we have so many geriatric patients that we do, yeah. right? Like our biggest advances really are in heart disease. Um, and so work really closely with cardiology, ophthalmology, neurology for sure. Um, but a lot of times what happens with neurology is if they're a new diagnosis of dementia, I'll work really closely and then they'll pass them off to me, mm. um, because they know, you know, it's, it's just, you know, there's, there's nothing they have to offer them, unfortunately, that I don't manage. It's, it's an unfortunate thing, but you know, in 30 years, we don't have any better meds for dementia. Yeah. Um, so neurology um, gastroenterology pretty frequently, not as frequently nephrology, largely because, you know, dialysis patients don't really like make it to, yeah. um, and then, you know, when I was in my fellowship, they had a really great program and one I had wished to start if I had stayed on faculty where I did, uh, you know, trauma, there's a huge push for having, um, Jerry trauma consults. Um, mm. because, um, so a lot of trauma surgeons work really closely with geriatricians because so much of the Jerry trauma are related to unrecognized geriatric syndromes and they, and they want better outcomes, you know, so getting a geriatrician involved a lot of times can mitigate delirium, can kind of get on the right track, get the right social services involved, recognizing the issues to prevent repeats of those sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any special opportunities outside of clinical medicine for geriatricians? Uh, yeah. So I, what I have been just recently getting uh, myself into is expert witness, interestingly. So, uh, there's a lot, uh, and I only do defense. I, there are some physicians that unfortunately significant, I think unfortunately, cause it contributes to a greater problem in society, but there's a lot of physicians, especially academic, academic physicians I've noticed, um, that are always like on the plaintiff side, happy to tell everybody else in medicine how they did everything wrong. Uh, but I only do defense and I do expert witness. So say, you know, a, a geriatric person had a fall in a nursing home, you know, and a bad outcome, which you can't prevent all falls. It's like literally not possible. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the family goes and sues, you know, I will do the defense and ex expert witness if I'm asked to. So, and that's actually, I, I find really, I, I really enjoy doing that. Yeah. Partly because I get to Sherlock Holmes the crap out of the medical <laughs> records, you know, yep. and then I get to play lawyer, which is kind of fun. Yeah. Lawyer and doctor at the same time, you know. 
What do you know now that you wish you knew before growing into geriatrics? <laughs> oh, shoot. Um, that the system is just not great for geriatric patients. It's really bad, actually. Um, and I, I don't think I realize that because it's changed. It's gotten a lot worse um, when I, since when I you know, was wide-eyed and rosy about going into it. If I was still, you know, if I did everything over I and became a physician again, I'd still go into geriatrics. But it took a, a little bit of a transition for me to realize um, how bad, you know, how I guess I was very idealistic and that that still a little bit idealistic, but reality hit. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So, uh, so I, I think I just wish I had known, you know, how how things would change in the system. For the, for the worse. Cause I think it's always important to like, it's easier for me to accept things. If I knew about it going in, it's like an informed consent process, you know, the same thing, like, you know, I didn't know I was going to have to take this family medicine boards every 10 years that doesn't apply to geriatric patients. And I didn't know that. So I'm really frustrated by that, but had I known it and still chose it, it's a different story, you know? Mm-hmm. So I can't, yeah, it's, it's hard to say, but I wish I hadn't known. <laughs> Um, but eventually, you know, this, the thing I get commented when people hear I'm a geriatrician, the thing I get the most from them is like, Oh, thank God we need those. And I'm like, yes, we do. We're not making them, (laughs) but yes, we do need them. But there's a reason we don't have that many, you know? So (laughs) yeah, there's a disconnect between the general population's understanding of how the medical system works and how the medical system works. Yeah. Yeah. What do you like the most about being a geriatrician? I mean, it's fun to be honest. Like you deal with people, you get to know their them and their families, and you're dealing with people. Yeah, I had actually told this to people when I was going into geriatrics and family medicine, and I did family medicine. And for some reason, I you know you can give me a forty year old who's a total punk and with all these problems, and I'm just like annoyed as well. But you give me that same 80-year-old, they can be sexist, they can be every ist, whatever. And what I'm just like, whatever, you've lived your life. I don't mind. <laughs> just take it with a grain yeah. of salt. So I guess I just have like a more patience for people who have lived, I guess. Yeah. And and they do have a lot of wisdom. And if you go into it with a sense of humor, I mean, you can have a lot of fun with it. I've I've had patients who I've you know, joke around, they say the funniest stuff, especially some of the ones with dementia. You know, I get to go to work and tell my demented old ladies that I love them and they tell me they lo- love me and <laughs> it's just happy, you know, yep. you can't really do that in other fields, yeah. you know, you can't do that. I had one, this is this a funny story. I had a patient in Lubbock when I was doing my private DPC practice and he's, you know, in his nineties and Lubbock is, um, you know, culturally and politically very one-sided and you go into these like you know, assisted livings. And it's just like Fox news constantly on the TV. (laughs) And I walked into his apartment and he was, you know, watching Fox news. And we were talking about how I really thought he shouldn't be driving. And I hadn't, I never had to like, eventually I convinced him to stop driving, but, but there was a period where I thought I was going to have to write a letter and take away his license. I'm glad it didn't come to that. Uh, But I do it if I have to, I'm a, I'm also a mom. Like I'm a firm believer. If you shouldn't be on the road, retire from driving. Yeah. But, um, at one point he was like, 
oh, you're not going to take my license. I said, oh, well, it's not about your driving. I was like, I don't want you to be able to vote. <laughs> <laughs> and we just laughed. It was a I was joking, but like we laughed about it. Like, you you know, you could do that with people who have lived or have a little dementia that you, you can't do it. That people are too PC these days. It's not the same. Yeah. So I, I, despite all the hardships, when I'm actually with my patients, I really enjoy it. What do you like the least? The charting. We already uh, talked about that. The, charting, <laughs> the system. Um, <laughs> and, you know, so the charting is a problem because it, it really just detracts so significantly and actually yeah. how fragmented the system is because it's so, I mean, I can do everything I can to try to call all the specialists and keep in touch with everybody. But even me as the physician calling, like can't always get through, you yeah. know, and it's just, so the, the I like it, the system is so detrimental to the patient population and it's a growing population and it's costly. And that's, what really frustrates me. So I, I don't know how yet I'm like in this period where I'm, you know, starting over with a new job and I'm really focused on not taking risks right now. Cause I'm like, I got to pay the bills. I just bought a house in Denver, you know, but I really want to get into advocacy for changing the system eventually. Um, because yeah. we, we will have to, I mean, we can't sustain the way we do things now. So yeah. yeah. Do you see any major changes coming to the field of geriatrics that students should be aware of? I mean, I think not, I mean, changes to the field, you know, we don't have any fancy, I will tell you this, like I don't, I stopped subscribing to the journal of the American geriatric society because like every study was like, oh, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, you know, <laughs> which it's like obvious if you practice, it's like, yeah, if you are untreated depression, you're at high risk for mortality. Like that's bad. Yeah. But also every single medicine we give you to treat your depression puts you at high risk for morbidity and mortality. <laughs> so like, that's what it is. So changes in the field, I don't think so. Where yeah. I hope will be changes is the system, Medicare, politics, our legislators will wake up and realize like, no, no, no. We have a lot of evidence to show that when geriatricians are involved, like there's better quality outcomes. And it, that doesn't mean just like people not dying because that's not how we judge our outcomes in geriatrics, right? Like, yeah. but it's a better quality of life for whatever they have and at way less cost to everybody. So <laughs> if, if we only judged, if you're not dying, we, you guys would be very bad at your job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I'm like, yeah. So when people are like, are, you know, so many of the studies, the outcome is like mortality as bad. And I'm like, well, that's not how geriatrics thinks of it. Like, because all of our patients are close to that phase of their life. Right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and I also do hospice. So a lot of geriatricians do hospice as well, because it just sort of, it's a similar mentality. Um, is palliative medicine and hospice care. But what I was going to say is I think the changes that will hopefully come is, you know, they will recognize the need for qualified geriatricians and hopefully, you know, do some sort of like a loan repayment for yeah. going into it, which is not done consistently now, which I really wish I had. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't. So, yeah. <laughs> Any last anyway. words of wisdom for the student who has been now... Uh, introduced to geriatric medicine in a way that's like, oh, that is kind of interesting. I, I want to go look into it some more. You know, if I would say it is one of the most fascinating medically fields you can go into because you do constantly have to use your mind. You have to be an expert at pharmacology. You have to be kind of an expert in psychiatry in some ways because you're constantly, you know, wondering, okay, is this a psychiatric thing or is this this new onset dementia? 
Uh, and then the physiology is fascinating. The pathophysiology is fascinating. I get really excited about, um, you know, EGFRs. <laughs> I like, so it's a, if you're somebody who just really likes to think and also really loves relationships, it's a great field for you, but you just do need to be aware of, you know, everybody's different in what their student debt burden is and what their, you know, need, what their support systems are. So it's not the field that's going to make you the most money, the fastest, I guess is what I would say. All right. So there you have it again, Dr. Shannon Tapia, geriatrician here in the Colorado area. If you have been interested in geriatrics, or if you didn't know anything about geriatrics, hopefully this episode has enlightened you, given you some information, and maybe gave you the encouragement to go seek out a mentor in the field of geriatrics. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Next week, we have a great conversation with a pediatric orthopedic surgeon about his specialty and much more. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.